I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to 2 Kings. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4, and there is a Bible app event for this you can follow along on. If you have a Bible in a seat near you, you can actually find this text on page 361. 2 Kings chapter 4 is where we'll be in just a short time. This is our final tool that we've been talking about in tools uh, that are actually uh, tools we can use for resilience that God helps us to use to bounce back. And we've talked about a lot of them. We've talked about spiritual companionship and spiritual mentoring. We've talked about processing your pain. We've talked about personal responsibility. We've talked about being hungry for God and having him fill you. And we've talked about corporate worship and teachability. This tool that we're going to be speaking about right now is a tool called hope. It's more than an optimistic outlook, it's hope. I don't know if any of you ever read Stephen King. I've not read his stuff, but I've watched his movies. They vary from really, really stupid to really, really good. Have you noticed that, right? Because there's Cujo, right? Was that like a big St. Bernard that was eating everyone? I can't remember, right? That's just not as good. And then there's the Shawshank Redemption, which is like, oh, that's a really interesting movie. Something you may or may not know about Stephen King is that some of his education, I don't know if it was his master's degree or what it was, is actually in theology. He studied God. And that's one of the reasons that he understands good and evil so clearly is because he has that kind of Bible background or theological background. It's in A Shawshank Redemption that he writes some really good words about hope. Stephen King has one of the characters in A Shawshank Redemption saying this, remember, Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. It's a great statement on hope. It was Martin Luther King Jr. who, when he was speaking of hope, he said uh, these words. He said, we must accept finite disappointment, but we must never lose infinite hope. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, yeah, in the day-to-day, every now and then, we have disappointments, but they're not the end of the world. That which is everlasting, that which is infinite, is hope. And you know, the Bible says it may be certainly best of all. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. When you think about that, wise people understand that while the Bible does conclude that love is indeed the greatest of faith, hope, and love, that faith and hope are nothing to sneeze at, that they are great things. In fact, I would say to you that hope is essential to living, and it is also essential to resilience. Now, we've talked in the past at times about what's the difference between, or what is the opposite of hope. Every now and then, someone will say, well, I think that maybe pessimism is the opposite of hope. Not really. You know, pessimism, that's saying the glass is half empty and optimists say the glass is half full. Someone who has hope would say the glass is filling up and the glass is going to be full. I would say instead of pessimism, probably the opposite of hope is despair. And when it comes to spiritual considerations, despair never has a good ending. It always has a bad ending and it never makes you resilient, whereas hope does. I want to ask you to consider three biblical examples, three people in the Bible who are examples of despair. And I want you to see how that despair entered their life, how it panned out in their life. And the first of these three is Elijah. And you may think to yourself, I don't know that Elijah was a, was he a person who would be characterized by despair? Not generally speaking. I mean, he was maybe one of the greatest, certainly one of the greatest prophets that Israel ever knew. 
You probably know the story of him on a place called Mount Carmel. He's there on top of this mountain. He's issued a challenge to the pagan prophets. He said, you guys set up an altar over there with your sacrifice on it. I'll set one over here. You pray that God, your gods, your pagan gods, would light your fire of the wood under the altar, under the sacrifice, and I'll pray that the living God of Israel will do so. And you know the end. They even poured water over top of the wood and everything to make it not be burnable. And when Elijah prayed, the fire fell from the sky. And the scripture says it consumed the wood, it consumed the sacrifice, it consumed the stones, it consumed the soil, and even lapped up the water that was there. I got to tell you, you ever call fire from heaven? Even half that impressive. That's a pretty good day in the kingdom. I mean, you ever do anything like that, you're going to have to say to yourself, I'm on top of my game. I mean, I don't know where I can go from here. This is probably as good as it gets. But Elijah, just within what appears to be moments of having done that, enters a season of despair in his life. You see, the pagan prophets, their biggest fan was an evil person, a woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel, when she heard everything that Elijah had done, she said, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time, tomorrow I think it was, you're not dead, Elijah. So he's on, his run, on the run. And he's running, and as he's running, he's going through what the scripture often refers to as the wilderness, but you and I would understand it as a pretty desolate place. And he finds himself in 1 Kings 19, sitting under a broom tree. The scripture says he came to a broom bush, actually. So this isn't a tree like an apple tree out in an orchard. This isn't like your, your dad and mom's maple tree that they had to swing on that he's under. He's under a, a bush that the branches of it are only good for making a broom out of. You get that? So he's sitting there probably in the sand, in the heat, in despair. It says he came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. You get those feelings, right? I want to die. I, I thought things were getting better. They're not. They're not getting any better at all. And I've done my very best. Take my life. Now, let me ask you a personal question I don't want you to answer out loud. Do you ever feel that way? Now, if you don't, if you say, no, I don't think I ever feel that way, great. <laughs> I am so glad that you haven't. But Elijah, this man of God, did. He felt despair. There's others as well. There's a fellow named Jonah who also is an example of despair. He's running away from God. God has told him, I want you to go and speak to the people of Nineveh. And Elijah said, I'm sorry, Jonah said, no. I don't want to go to speak to those people. And so instead of going to Nineveh, he gets on a ship and heads in the opposite direction as fast as he can. And God is pursuing him. And God causes this great storm to come and the boat is being rocked to and fro. And the sailors are being, they're worried about it. And Jonah knows why. He knows what's going on. He knows that he's to blame. He knows that there's no running away from God. He knows that he's out of option. But because of his hard-heartedness, Jonah, <laughs> Jonah would rather face death than surrender to God. He's on a pathway to despair. Listen to the conversation between him and the sailors on the ship. It says the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they ask him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? And Jonah says, pick me up, 
and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm. I know it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And soon thereafter, that is exactly what happened. That's a man who is in despair. Let me give you one more example of a person who's in despair, and that would be Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is a disciple who actually um, betrayed Jesus, and his life ends in despair. I'm going to read five verses from Matthew 27. Just listen to them as I read them. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the government governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he, seized, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, this is your responsibility. Now listen to verse five. It says, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. That, in my opinion, is the ultimate picture of despair presented in the Bible. With no apparent hope of forgiveness or redemption, Judas takes his own life. Despair. Now, regarding each of these people, we can see a number of contributing factors that actually lend themselves to the despair he experienced, the first one, or they experienced, the first one is disappointment with God. Elijah certainly must have felt this way. I mean, he just called fire from heaven, and now he's running from the evil, wicked Queen Jezebel. He's got to be asking, how does this happen? I would be asking that. How do you do the most amazing thing that anyone here has ever seen, and immediately afterward find yourself running for the hills, running for your life? God, God, I just called down fire from heaven. How can you let Jezebel pursue me with the the sword? Disappointment with God. When you think God should do something and he doesn't do that, you can be tempted to despair. Demanding God to do what you expect. Another contributing factor could be rebellion against God. And that's where I see Jonah in this story. God had called him, go to Nineveh, preach there. (laughs) Jonah's thinking to himself, are you crazy? Those are our enemies. Nineveh, they are enemies of the state. They are my enemies. I have people that are dead because of people like those people in Nineveh. I want them to die. You're telling me if I should go and tell them unless they repent, you'll kill them. I don't want them to repent. I want you to kill them. I'm going the other way. And he's in rebellion against God. And I want to say from personal experience, it never works to rebel against God. It never does. If you like classic movies, you really should see The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. If you haven't seen that movie, you should watch it. But be warned, it doesn't have all the action that Guardians of the Galaxy has, right? It feels kind of tame, and you're going to look at it, you're going to be really tempted to say, like, those special effects are so hokey. And if someone is near you when you say that, I hope they stuck a sock in your mouth, right? Because it's what they had. It is a great piece of cinematic uh, history. The the man who produced that, his name is Cecil DeMille. He was raised in a Bible-believing church. And if you look at his film production from the silent movies on, he was frequently doing movies about biblical things. He did Samson and Delilah. He did many, many Bible stories, even in the silent film era. It was kind of his thing. One time he was giving a speech, and he made what I consider to be a pretty profound statement. 
he said this. He said, it is impossible for us to break the law of God. We can only break ourselves upon the law of God. That's a thought-provoking statement, isn't it? And I know it's debatable, but don't miss his point. The point he is saying is that when we rebel against God, we are breaking our very selves. And we are the ones who are suffering the destruction at our own hands. Ask Jonah. Despair. That's where it leads. There's a third contributing factor in our struggle with despair that I would classify as our failure to, in our attempts to manipulate God. We all tend to manipulate God from time to time. God, if you do this, then I'll do that. God, why won't you do this? Why won't you make her like me? <laughs> why won't you give me that job? Why do I have to be in this situation? And we all sometimes work to manipulate God. And when we fail at that, that can move us toward despair. I tend to think this is where Judas was sitting in his story. He had been a follower of Jesus for three years. He was one of the 12, one of the insiders, so to speak, in the nation. Then in the third year, at the Feast of Passover, Judas decides, I'm going to betray the guy I've been following. Why? And there's a lot of suggestions, a lot of theories as to why. And I think more than one of them is right. I think they kind of overlap and and perhaps even all of them are right. One of the theories as to why did Judas betray Jesus is because he never really bought into Jesus. In fact, if you look, you'll see the other disciples, the apostles refer to Jesus as Lord. Judas refers to him as rabbi. Does that mean maybe he's really not on track? Perhaps. Could be. Another idea is that the Bible does indeed affirm that Satan had entered Jesus. I'm sorry, Satan had entered Judas at that point. Satan never entered Jesus. Okay, let's be clear on that. But the Bible does affirm that Satan had entered Judas at that point. And so he was demonized, or maybe in past generations we would have said demon-possessed. And so maybe that's why, well, yeah, I think that would be part of the reason why, right? Another idea is, well, Judas was always struggling with evil, and he had an evil bent throughout his life. After all, he stole money from the ministry, and it does say that in John 12, that Judas often helped himself to what was there, and and he wasn't really concerned about the poor when he made that issue, but he was concerned about the money. I like those three ideas. My, my, the the theory that, that I tend to buy in the most is the theory that says that, like most people in his time and in his day, Judas expected that whoever the Messiah would be, they would overthrow the Roman opposition. We're looking for a Messiah, a first century Jew would say, because Rome is setting up their headquarters here right in the kingdom, and somebody needs to kick them out. And so Judas, like everyone else, would be thinking the Messiah is here to overthrow the Roman occupation. And when he does, wow, the inside circle, they will be given power. And so after three years of expecting that to happen, and it's not happened, Judas was like, I'm going to make this happen. So maybe Judas was trying to force God's hand. It's never a good idea to try to force God's hand. You will always fail. And then you will realize the pure absurdity of such thinking that you actually could twist God's arm and then like Judas, you will be tempted to despair. Now, in each of these cases, the universal remedy for all of these is hope. Disappointment with God, like Elijah, 
oh man, this isn't turning out like I thought. Well, hope, and it will. Hope. Or Jonah, you know, God, I don't want to do that. It's a pure rebellion. Go ahead and do it, Jonah. Hope for something better. Or even Judas, like, this isn't turning out like I wanted to. I would like you, God, to be giving me some kind of, well, then humble yourself. Because when you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, he lifts you up in due time. Just hope for that. In all of these cases, hope would have shown through and changed despair. In fact, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. Hope overcomes despair and it gives us resilience. And, and I feel like we need to give consideration to how then do I act with hope? And I know what you're thinking. Are we ever going to get to 1 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4? Yes, we are right now. I'm going to show you in this story, in these seven verses, how a widow who had no means at all, had nothing at her disposal except a small bottle of oil and hope, how she was resilient. So have your Bibles open to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're just going to read seven verses. It says, A wife of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elijah. Pause. Elisha, pause. Okay, so think about this. This is the wife of someone who was in a group of religious leaders called the company of prophets in the nation of Israel, in the kingdom. And Elisha is kind of like the head of that group of prophets. So it's kind of like if you think of our district in western Pennsylvania, if you want to think of it that way, and all the pastors are like spiritual leaders, you could think that way, and a district superintendent is Elisha. This, this woman, who's a pastor's wife, cries out to the district superintendent. It's bigger than that, but you get the picture, right? The wife of a man from a company of prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know how he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my boys, as his slaves. Elisha said to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour the oil from this little container, pour the oil into all the jars And as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there's not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, go and sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left. I want you to think about how much oil they must have got. Enough to pay off a debt so significant that two young men could be put into slavery to pay for it. And on top of that, enough to live on it until those men had grown to the point where they could probably support the family. That's a lot of olive oil coming out of that. I was going to bring today, but I didn't. I was going to bring my wife's Bertoli bottle of oil, you know, it's, uh, she cares enough to use the very best Bertoli. Um, I'm guessing that the widow's oil vessel would have been a little bit smaller than that from what I've, I've seen. And I was going to bring from, because I grew up on a farm, 
I have a, a milk, what do they call those milk jars? You know, the, the steel ones? What are those called? Say it again. Milk can, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. A big milk can, right? Like that big. And I was going to take my wife's Bertoli oil and pour it in there, but that's why it all broke down when I thought to do that, right? Because she wouldn't like that, right? <laughs> but here's what I can guarantee you. If I had done that, it would have covered the bottom, and that would have been it. It wouldn't have kept coming and coming and coming and coming, but this kept coming and coming and coming. And because she hoped, she saw her despair disappear. I see a number of lessons we can really get from this widow. Uh, One of them is that we need to let hope turn our hearts toward God. That's kind of what she did. She cries out to Elisha because she's looking for God to do something. She says, your servant, my husband is dead and you know he revered the Lord, but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves and she turns her heart toward God. I want to suggest to you by nature we don't do that. By nature, despair turns you down and away from God. And you kind of even see it in your posture. I mean, think of someone who is despairing. You don't see them looking like this, right? You can see non-verbally in their posture that their head is down. Their shoulders are slumped. They're looking at their shoes. They're not looking up toward God. They've kind of looking down almost into themselves into a sort of state of hopelessness. Even your posture kind of shows that. I want to say to you that despair causes you to look down, physically, emotionally, even spiritually, and if you want to be resilient, you're going to have to look up toward God. And until you do that, you will never begin to be resilient. And the way you do that is through hope. I was always taught to pray with my head bowed and my eyes closed, and that's generally how I do pray. How many were taught to pray that way? Bow your head, close your eyes, yeah. Anybody taught to pray a different way? Yeah, no. I find it interesting that Jesus, when he prayed, he didn't pray that way every time. I think it's good to pray that way. We do that to show honor to God, to show reverence to him. We close our eyes so our mind isn't wandering. We're not looking at Facebook or other social media. We're just focusing on what God, what we're saying to God and what we're hearing from him. So I think it's good to pray that way. But I can think of two times where Jesus didn't pray that way. Instead, the scripture says, Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. He happened to say that, by the way, at the tomb of Lazarus, right before he raised him from the dead. He's in a cemetery. Everyone around him is filled with despair. But Jesus isn't looking down. Jesus is looking toward God, and he's saying, thank you, God, for hearing me. Another place he does it is another place where everyone's filled with despair. Jesus even should be filled with despair. He's preparing to go to the cross. And it says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. He looked toward heaven. He's looking up. Now, listen, I am not saying you should not bow your head and close your eyes when you pray. I'm not saying that at all. Here's what I am saying. While prayer includes bowing your heart before God, it also includes lifting your face toward hope, toward God. And if you want to pull out of despair, you're going to have to turn your face toward him. You're going to have to let hope turn your face toward God. A second lesson I see in the life of this woman is to let hope drop the mask that you wear, the one you wear before God. Let hope take that mask away. Something that really stands out to me in this woman's life is that she's not sugarcoating anything. 
I mean, she speaks clearly about her desperation. (laughs) What's that phrase? Desperate times call for desperate measures. That was her right now. This is a desperate thing. Desperate times call for desperate measures. But here's something I've observed. That sometimes we begin to despair about maybe a physical illness or about managing our finances or regarding our marriage or concerning our children. And we don't take the desperate measure of asking asking God and asking people around us to ask God to help. And instead, we wear this kind of mask so that when someone says, is everything okay? We say, yeah, everything's okay. This widow did not wear any mask at all because she knew that you'll never begin to act with hope if you're pretending that everything is all right before God. If you're wearing a mask before God and not being honest with God, you're not doing what this woman was doing. She has no mask. She's not acting spiritual. She's, if you ask her, hey, how's it going with you and your two boys? She'd say, terrible. That's how it's going between us. I need someone to pray for us. I need God to do something for us. Looking at her, you didn't see someone who was calm, cool, and collected. She was worried, and she said so. She was afraid, and she let it be known. She was desperate, and she expressed it. I mean, look at verse 1 again. It says, The wife of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elijah. Hear that word? Cried out to Elijah. And says basically what he probably already knows. My husband's dead, and I am in a world of hurt. And if God doesn't do something, I don't know what's going to happen. She doesn't wear a mask. A friend of mine does. (laughs) I have a good friend who struggles in this area. A lot of things in his life have not panned out as he expected. I mean, you name it. His vocation, not what he thought he would get with his degree. His family, not who he hoped they would become as he was raising them. His health, not what he wants to experience at this point in life. And most people, were I in his shoes, I would struggle. And I would feel, I would feel a sense of despair at times. But when I ask him, he wears this mask. Hey, how's, how are you dealing with the, re, the, the sense of disappointment you might have concerning this? And I know him well, and I know him well enough to ask that kind of question. And he looks surprised. He says, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Well, how can you say that? And, and he won't take off that mask. He's not experiencing resilience. He's struggling with despair. And he will never get back up from where he has been knocked down to until he takes off the mask before God and says, I need you to do something because this is a desperate time. If you want to take the lesson from this widow, then you're going to have to let hope cause you to drop your mask before God. And third, you have to let hope drive you to obedience that comes from trust. Could that be any more awkwardly worded than that? But you know what I say to you? I say, if it's awkwardly worded, that means I just couldn't figure out the way to say the really important thing. And this might be one of the most important things that I'll say to you today. You have to let hope begin to grow in your heart and drive you to obey God because you are choosing to trust God. That's what I mean by that last sentence. I'll obey you because I trust you. Think about what this woman was told to do. Go around and ask your neighbors for empty milk jugs or jars. Don't ask for just a few. 
And then go inside and shut the door behind you and your son and pour oil from that little container there into those jugs, those big jugs that you have there in your house. And do it as each one is filled, put it aside and fill the next one. Those giant jugs, I want you to fill them with this little half pint container. Do that. It kind of reminds me of a story I've heard preachers tell before, but I never really could connect it to their sermon. I think it connects well here. It's the story of a guy named Jack. Jack's walking along one day on some unfamiliar territory, and he comes to the edge of a cliff. He doesn't realize the cliff. He's not paying close attention, and he goes down, down. And he reaches out at the last moment, and he grabs a root of a tree that's hanging there, and he says, oh my goodness, wow, I just made it. And then he looks down, and it's hundreds and hundreds of feet below, rocks down at the bottom. And there's no other branches, and so he can't pull himself up, and so he starts yelling for help, hoping maybe someone else is out here walking around and, help, help, is there anyone there, help? And he calls and he calls until he's almost exhausted and no one answers. And finally, he hears a voice and it says, Jack, Jack, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I I can hear you. I'm down here. I see you, Jack. Are are you all right? Yeah, Who, who are you? Where are you? It's the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean God? Yeah, that's me. God, please help me. I promise that if you help me, God, I, I, help me get down from here, I'll stop sinning. <laughs> I'll be a really good person. I'll go to church all the time. I'll teach Sunday school. I'll even do the nursery. I'll, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. Easy on the promises there, Jack. Let's just get you out of this situation before we start talking about that. Now, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen carefully. Okay, God, I'll do anything. What what do you want me to do? Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch. Is there anybody else up there? Yeah, yeah, if I were this widow, that's what I would say. You're telling me to do something crazy and I'm in a desperate situation nearing despair. The only thing that made her pour the oil was that she let hope drive her to obedience that was based in her trust of God. And that's what you need to do too. That's what I need to do. Because we need to hope. And when we do that, we become resilient. And the only reason we can become resilient is because of Jesus. Because of his death for us, that's the only reason we can hope. You you know (laughs) that he gave his life for us, and that gives us hope of forgiveness of sin. That when we turn our hearts from sin, that's repentance, and turn them toward him, and when we trust that his death on the cross paid for our sin and tell him so, that he forgives our sin. We have the hope of being forgiven. He erases our shame and we have the hope of being without shame. And he gives us a home in heaven and we have a hope of eternal life in heaven. But he gives us hope every day because of his death on the cross. Every day because of his death on the cross. Romans chapter 8 speaks to this off and on throughout the chapter. 
And most people would say, if you say Romans chapter 8, what's your favorite verse? Those who have maybe studied that and memorized some verses would say, well, verse 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's a great verse. I love that verse. But the verse in Romans chapter 8 that I quote the most is verse 32, just four verses later, where the word of God says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And you hear what God's word is saying there, right? It's saying if God loved you enough to send Jesus to die for your sins, then don't you think God loves you enough to help you in whatever desperate situation you might feel that you're in? Can't you hope in that kind of a God? And when you find yourself, as you're coming to communion today, and the thing that's on your mind, like what's happening vocationally with me, or where am I going financially, or what's going to happen with our government, or our world situation, or what's going to happen with my children, or what about my loved one who's struggling with addiction, or what about me who's struggling with addiction, or what about, what about, what about, in all those areas that you are tempted to despair, you can hope in the one who loved you and gave himself for you. And that's worth celebrating. That's a beautiful thing. So as we share in communion today, and as these elements will be passed, the bread and the cup, you can take time today to speak to God concerning your own state and your own disappointment and your own rebellion and your own attempts at trying to manipulate God. And you can say, God, forgive me for those things. I will hope in you and in you alone. I will not despair. And when you do that, something begins to grow within you. It's called hope. And it blossoms into a healthy, healthy plant that causes you to grow. I want to pray that that would be in your life as we prepare for communion. So let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your great love for us that you showed us in Christ Jesus. And as we turn to communion, we turn our minds toward you. We turn our minds toward your great gift, Jesus. And it makes us realize that God, if you loved us enough to have given your son, you love us enough to graciously give us whatever we need. This is our hope. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.